It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Let me ask you a question. Are you experiencing peace in your life? Or would you say that your life is a little bit more chaotic, full of turmoil and anxiety? As Christians, we must remember that Christ doesn't merely give us peace as much as he is our peace. And that is the focus for today's Daily Thunder. But before we jump into that, I just want to remind all of those who are Ellerslie alumni that we have an alumni summit this October 11th through the 17th. If you have not yet registered for the summit, please consider joining us this October as we gather together as the body of Christ to pursue Jesus. It'll be a great time of exhortation, reminders, encouragement, and just wonderful camaraderie as we pursue and focus on Jesus together. You can learn more about the Alumni Summit by going to ellerslie.com forward slash daily. And if you're not yet an Ellerslie alumni, consider joining us for one of our training programs. You can learn more about those by going to ellerslie.com. Now, in today's Daily Thunder, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, as Paul talks about this phenomenal concept that Jesus is our peace. Uh, we've been walking through the uh, <clears throat> section here where Paul is talking about the Jews and the Gentiles and bringing them together and, and uh, making peace. And uh, what I'd like to do is <clears throat> start in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, and uh, read down through I think verse 16 or so. Uh, So Ephesians chapter 2. This is uh, what Paul writes. He says, Therefore, remember that you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision in the flesh by human hands, were at that time, apart from Christ, alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who has made both groups one and has broken down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity that is the law of the commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man thus making peace, and that he might reconcile both to God into one body through the cross, thereby slaying the enmity. Verse 17, and he came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Uh, We're looking at verse 14 this morning. For he is our peace who has made both groups one. I love this idea of peace. And again, we've been walking through verses 11, 12, and 13, and the fact that here are these two distinct groups, right? We have the Jews and we have the Gentiles. And we've walked through this over and over again. But again, these two groups did not like each other. Uh, The Jews, if you remember this, one of my favorite quotes, uh, the Jews, the thought process with the Jew is the only reason why God had created the Gentiles was that the Gentiles were supposed to be the fuel for the fires of hell. Praise the Lord. (laughs) So, hey, God has chosen us, his special people. But then, hey, here are the Gentiles. Well, what what good are the Gentiles? Well, 
we at least got to have something to fuel hell. So God had created you. <laughs> Congratulations, right? And so these two groups are in hostility with one another. They do not like each other. And it goes both directions. So obviously, and we keep walking through this, but, and this is review, but obviously there's a problem in the early church. What's the problem in the early church? Well, Gentiles are being saved. And that's actually not the problem. The problem is, well, what do we do with these people? Like, do they have to become Jews in order to actually have the reality of, of the Christian life? Or can they be Gentile Christians? Could you imagine <laughs> a Gentile Christian? Mercy. And so Paul's trying to articulate to a Gentile church what is going on in the body of Christ. And of course, he talks about in verses 11, 12, and 13, this reality that, hey, there's this been separation. Hey, there is, there's been this division all along. And verse 13, which we looked at in the last time together, uh, verse 13 says, but now in Christ Jesus, those Gentiles who were formerly afar off have been brought near. And how have they been brought near? By the blood of Jesus. And we were talking about the precious blood of Jesus and the fact that the blood has, has brought these two groups together. And then almost as a continuation or as an expansion or perhaps even as a simplification, Paul in verse 14 makes this statement. He says, for he, Jesus, is our peace. He is our peace. He doesn't give peace. He is peace. Uh, the word peace here in the passage, Irene in the Greek, it shows up 91 times in the New Testament. And it's interesting, it's in every single book of the New Testament except for 1 John, which I have no idea why John did not include it. But otherwise, it's on every other single book of the New Testament. And what's interesting, in our book, Ephesians, the word peace shows up eight times. But four of those times shows up between verses 14 through 17 of chapter 2. In other words, and again, we've talked through this, right, that repetition is there for emphasis. So what's interesting is when you look at verses 14 down to verse 17, the fact that in those few verses, Paul uses the word peace four times is really, really significant. Obviously, the first one is in, in our verse 14, right? He is our peace. In verse 15, it says that he has made peace. And then in verse 17, he says he has proclaimed peace to those who are far off, the Gentiles, and he's proclaimed peace to those who are near the Jews. So four times in those passages, it's using this word peace. So he is peace, he makes peace, he proclaims peace. Isn't that a neat thought? That he is peace, and therefore, because he is peace, he makes peace, and he also proclaims peace. <clears throat> now, for clarity's sake, we have to define what peace is not. I don't know what you think of when you hear peace, but I think of like sitting on a beach, having a tall glass of lemonade, hearing the rushing waves come in, reading a good book, sun beating down, but not too bright, so I get a sunburn, right? Just perfect. You know, 70 degrees, you know, sort of sunny. I mean, that seems peaceful, but that's not peace. You may have a momentary feeling of peace in that, in that kind of thing, but that's actually not what peace is. When you look at peace, the Greeks and the Hebrews had a slightly different understanding of, of peace. In the Greek mentality... In other words, this, the Greek word erene, peace, the word itself has this idea of harmonious relations from freedom, sorry, harmonious relations and freedom from disputes, harmony and tranquility. 
So it has this idea of a, it's a state of just, whoa, right? Harmony and peace and tranquility, that kind of idea. But in the Hebrew, which is the word shalom, that word peace is loaded with meaning and definition. And if he says, well, which one is Paul is using here in our passage? Well, he's obviously using the Greek word, but it's like he's loading it with the Hebrew understanding, right? He is Hebrew, right? He grew up as a, as a he was trained as a rabbi. He, he has a thought process that is very Hebrew. And so when he talks about the fact that Jesus is our peace, he obviously is using a Greek word because he's writing in Greek, but he's packing it with a Hebrew understanding of peace. So what is shalom? When you start looking at this idea of shalom in the Old Testament, it's fascinating to me because, again, shalom is not just, well, it's peace. Oh, it's relaxation. Again, it's loaded with meaning. So let me give you some of these. The best way to maybe to, per, to understand peace is this idea, it's the removal of enemy faction. That when you remove the enemy, oh, it results in peace. The problem with that is, is that when you get into the New Testament, the enemy doesn't leave. <laughs> in other words, you're still surrounded. So in a one, maybe a better sense, it's peace in the midst of the enemy faction. That it doesn't matter the circumstance or the trials or the situations, you can have peace. That there's a rest. But in this idea of shalom, get this, it contains the idea of well-being, health, prosperity, security, soundness, completeness, wholeness, and all that's kind of packaged in this idea of peace. Uh, yesterday, I thought it'd be fun just to kind of do some study of peace in the Old Testament. And if you want some categories, here's how the word is used throughout the Old Testament. It's used in the sense of greetings and farewells. In fact, that's still used today, right? You go to the Middle East, Israel specifically, and you walk up to somebody, and how do you say hello? Shalom, right? Why? Because you're, you're pronouncing peace upon them. As you leave, how, what do you say? You say, shalom. Why? Because you're saying, hey, I'm leaving peace with you. And of course, you see that going on in Paul's writings. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So peace was often used in the Old Testament era in this idea of greetings and, and farewells. It's used in the sense of well-being. Uh, you go up to, say, uh, to someone and say, hey, how are you doing? Which, by the way, really just just smells of American success and busyness, doesn't it? It's not how are you being, which would actually probably be a better question, even though it sounds really weird. We're saying, hey, how are you doing? And of course, the most common response today is, well, fine, or busy, good, right? It's, it's typically one of those. But we're asking how someone is doing, which is this idea of action and productivity and function. And in the Old Testament, they would not ask someone how they were doing. They would actually ask, how is your peace? How are you? How's your soul? Are you doing well? How's your well-being is the idea. And then a crazy thought. So instead of saying, so it's like, peace, hi, peace upon you. How's your peace? Try it. That'd be kind of a fun thought, huh? <clears throat> Uh, Exodus, if you want an example, Exodus 18, verse 7. Uh, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. That word welfare is actually the word shalom. And so they asked each other, hey, how is your peace? 
Isn't that awesome? So next time someone comes up to you and says, hey, how are you doing? You can say, I don't do. I peace. I don't know. Another way this word is used in the Old Testament is this idea of the absence of hostility. In other words, peace is in contrast with warfare. And when there is no more warfare, there is peace. Another, another way it's used is to characterize relationships. I thought this was really fascinating. Several times in the Old Testament, the word close friend is used. Oh, that they are a close friend. Uh, for example, if you need some illustrations, uh, Psalm uh, chapter 7, verse 4, Psalm 41, verse 9, <clears throat> Uh, Jeremiah 20, verse 10, Jeremiah 28, verse 22. There's this, there's this undercurrent of like, hey, this is a close friend. And that word close is actually the word shalom. That is this idea of a <clears throat> uh, friendship or care or loyalty or love, again, associated with this idea of peace, that they're a friend of peace, that they're close because they have peace, they bring peace, they are peace, they're a close friend. So again, the word is sometimes used to characterize relationships. And then it's also used as an inauguration of covenants. In other words, as I, as I enter into a covenant with somebody, hey, let's have a peace treaty. What is that? It's a covenant, right? And so what you would do at the beginning of a covenant is to walk through again and, and walk through the uh, establishing or de declaring the existing relationship that the two of you have together, which is what? Peace. And so you come into covenant. Wouldn't it be neat if all those things were true with Jesus? Ponder this. You, you realize it's not just the greeting and farewell thing. Hey, peace, peace, peace. But it's, it's the sense of well-being. Hey, how is your peace? You realize he is that peace. And wouldn't it be neat if it's the absence of hostility, <clears throat> that inside of your life there's not to be warfare going on. Why? You were to be at peace. That there is this relationship characterized by peace, love, and loyalty, and care, and friendship. That there's this covenant that you are in with Jesus, and what is that marked by? Peace. Now, Paul says that Jesus himself is our peace, that God is a God of peace, that he doesn't have peace as much as he is peace, and that's significant. Uh, Romans 15, verse 33. <clears throat> Paul says, Now the God of peace be with you all. And it's describing who God is. That God is the God of peace. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 11. Paul writes, Finally, brothers, rejoice! Aim for restoration. By the way, what is restoration all about? Peace. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Isn't that great? So Paul keeps using this idea that God doesn't have peace as much as he is peace. He is the God of peace. And this is found also in Romans 16, verse 20, Philippians 4, verse 9, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23, Hebrews 13, 20. Sorry if you're trying to write all those down. <laughs> but this thing keeps showing up all over the place. That God is a God of peace. And of course, it's pulling on this Old Testament idea that God doesn't merely have peace, he is peace. Maybe the most classic illustration from in the Old Testament is Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, 
And in Isaiah, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called. Think about this. This is his name. And a name in the Old Testament is not just a name. A name is symbolic of life and character and nature and attributes and that kind of stuff. So what is the Messiah's name going to be? Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That he is the Prince of Peace. Not because he has peace as much as because he is peace. And by the way, that word Prince of Peace can actually be translated the Prince of Completeness or the Prince of Wholeness or the Prince of Soundness. Peace is still better in my mind. But what is he doing? He's bringing restoration. He's bringing wholeness. He's bringing completeness. He's bringing a removal of enemy hostility, which he accomplished on the cross. And again, he doesn't really give you peace. He is your peace. And we've walked through this countless times. Uh, But again, God is not a store clerk. You don't go up to God and say, God, I really need some peace right now. And God goes, oh, I have exactly what you need. I have a pill. Yeah, it's called peace. Just pop this thing and oh, you will be at peace. If you go up to God and say, God, I need peace, do you know what he gives you? Jesus, who becomes your peace. In fact, I love this idea in Galatians chapter 5, right? We're walking through the fruits of the Spirit, and Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness. That peace is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Meaning you don't go after and produce the peace in and of yourself. You are connected to the vine, the life source. And the life source comes inside of you, the Spirit of God, right? And the Spirit begins to produce fruit. And as long as the branch is connected to the vine and the life of the vine is flowing into the branch, it will produce the fruit. And what's one of the fruit it's going to produce? Peace. So it's not that you have to go over and kind of grit your teeth and try to pull off pull off some peace, this is, hey, if you would get into Jesus and begin to abide and remain in him, you just can't help yourself but begin to experience peace. Why? Because it is a fruit. It is an evidence of that life. Uh, it's interesting. You, you go to John 14, verse 6. You don't, you don't have to turn there. but And you know John 14, 6, right? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And it's not that he has truth, he is truth. It's not that he has life, he is life. It's not that he has a way, he is the way. And of course, and again, I think we've walked through all this, but if Jesus is the truth, then anything outside of Jesus is a lie. If he is life, then anything outside of him is a death. If he is the way, then anything outside of him, right, means you're lost and you're confused because you've lost the way. Isn't it interesting here, Paul says he is peace? Not that he has peace, he is peace, which means anything outside of Jesus merely leads to chaos and frustration and warfare and troubles and problems and pain and because he is peace. And if you want peace, you've got to find peace in Jesus. And if you're outside of Jesus, no wonder the world is going crazy. No wonder they live in fear. No no wonder there is chaos. No wonder there is trouble. No wonder there is trepidation. No wonder there is anxiety. Why? Because they don't have Jesus, who is peace itself. So with all that that 
kind of, if you take that as an umbrella idea, let me give you three quick ideas about what does it mean for, for Jesus to be our peace. I think there are three, I don't know if you want to call them ideas or you want to call them directions. I don't know what you want to, how you want to phrase these. But there are, there's, there's these three concepts that you need to understand in relation to the idea that Jesus is our peace. All right, ready? Number one, redemption. You realize that one of these ideas with peace with God, or sorry, peace, Jesus being our peace, is that we have peace with God, that we have redemption. Now, we've been walking through this over and over in Ephesians, uh, but for example, turn over and look at uh, chapter 1, verse 7. In, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, Paul says that in him, right, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Again, this idea of forgiveness is that he has bestowed upon you, he has, he has saved you, and you have this forgiveness thing, not just of sins, deeds, but of sin itself, that, that God has dealt with your issues, that you have the sin problem and you have been given forgiveness, that he has taken your slate and he has wiped it clean. But you've also had redemption. And the word redemption here is this idea of it's the purchase, that here I am chained into slavery. And what has God done? Oh, he has purchased me. Therefore, he's broken the chains of that slavery. And I've been made set free. So there's this idea that when I begin to experience the fact that Jesus is my peace, I realize that one of the aspects of that is that I have peace with God. That there has been a restoration of relationship. That I have redemption. Why? Because Jesus is my peace. That he has stepped into the middle of the enmity and the chaos and my rebellion, and he has brought peace in the middle of my, of my, my life. So there's been this huge goal for, or I've been, I've been shaking my fist in rebellion to God, or there's this divide, or how, whatever the language you want to use, right? That I've been chained to sin, that I've been hostile to God, that I, I've been at enmity with God, and Jesus came in and brought peace in the middle of that. How did he do it? The cross. If you look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, <clears throat> again, Paul goes through this idea. In verses 1 through 3, he says that, hey, you were living in sin. Hey, you were, you were just all messed up. You were all about yourself. You are all just, and what did Jesus do? Verse 14, sorry, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. What did he do? He brought peace. And now you get to have relationship with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Why? Because he is our peace. And he took that enmity and he took that sin and he took that hostility and, and took that rebellion and dealt with it so that you could have peace with God. So there's this whole idea of redemption, restoration in your spiritual life. Not only is it redemption, it's this idea, number two, of rest. Do you realize that one of the things that the fact that he is our peace means is that you get to have peace inside of yourself? Because you've been made at peace with God, you now get to have peace on the insides of who you are. Again, go back into that Hebrew idea of peace. It has this idea of well-being, health, prosperity, security, soundness, completeness, wholeness, it's hard, to, it's hard to see if you're just hearing it, but you realize that one of the things that God is trying to do in your life is to bring 
wholeness and holiness to your life. Holiness, right? H-O-L-I-N-E-S-S, holiness. But wholeness, W-H-O-L-E, right? He's making you whole and holy. That God is doing both of those things. And this idea of shalom is that there's this completeness, a wholeness, a he's, he's making you the full thing. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul says this, Now may the God of peace, isn't this interesting? Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you or make you holy completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. So here is the God of peace sanctifying us, making us holy, to do what? Make us whole. He's making you complete. That he's restoring all things. That he is making you a full person. That he is sanctifying every area of your life. Why? Because he's a God of peace. And if the God of peace is coming inside of your life, <clears throat> he's going to bring peace. Which isn't just a sense of calm as much as there's a wholeness. He, he's removing the enemy faction from within. He's removing the warfare. He's removing the, the issues, the, the inner turmoil kind of stuff. Wouldn't it be great if you could live in that? That, that there wasn't this dual reality fighting inside of your spirit? Wouldn't it be great if there was just this calm in your spirit? Wouldn't it just be amazing if there was a wholeness instead of brokenness on the insides? He's going to do that. Why? Because he is peace. And he is restoring all things. Which is what? It's a rest. Read Hebrews chapter 4. What is Hebrews 4 all about? Rest. That you are to enter into the rest that he has given you. And just as the promised land was a picture of rest, so too your life is to be a picture of rest. And you can say, uh, Nathan, uh, the whole Israel thing, when they entered in, it was not rest. There were 31 hostile empires. I know. Just like in your life. And what were the Israelites called to do in the promised land? Bring the land rest. A removal of that enemy faction. Guess what God wants to do in your, in your life? Remove the enemy faction. That there's that process of sanctification where he's removing those 31 hostile empires. Giants are not to rule your life. So what is he doing? He's bringing rest. He's bringing peace because he is peace. I love Mark chapter 4. <clears throat> Here's Jesus. He's about to go to the other side of the lake. And here they are in the middle of the night. They're on the Sea of Galilee and this windstorm picks up and the, the whole the whole thing is crazy. Jesus sleeping. They think they're, they're going to die. So the disciples wake up Jesus and they say, hey, do you not care that we're about to die? And Jesus goes, what are you doing? Settle down. I'm taking a nap. Chill. All right. And he stands up. And what does he say to the winds and the rains and, and the, all the craziness, the chaos? Peace. Peace be still. And what happens? There's a calm. And that was Physical. But then the very next passage is he lands on the shore and here is this demon-possessed man who is full of a legion of demons. And he's running and he's screaming and he's naked and I would be screaming <laughs> and running from him. All right, <clears throat> but, here, but here's this man who's full of demons. And what does Jesus do? He casts out the demons and brings the man peace. And there's this beautiful parallel between what was happening physically on the Sea of Galilee bringing peace, is happening now spiritually and emotionally and mentally inside the man. And he was brought peace. 
you know what God wants to do in your life? Peace. And there, isn't, there shouldn't be chaos and there shouldn't be the swirling and there shouldn't be a, that he's wanting to deal with these areas of your life of brokenness. He's wanting to remove the chaos and he wants to remove the, the conflict and he's wanting to remove the, wouldn't it be great to live in peace? You realize what he's wanting to do is remove the enemy faction. That, that, that whatever that is inside of you, now it doesn't mean life's going to be easy. That doesn't mean temptation is going to re- be removed. Right? It doesn't mean you're, you're not going to be attacked by the enemy. But what if in the middle of the enemy attack, you could actually have peace? That's all over the Old Testament, by the way. That he is our buttress, our shield, our protector, our strong tower, our horn of salvation. In fact, let me give you a few verses. Uh, Psalm 18, verse 2. My Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my, my God, my strength in whom I trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. What is he? He's your place of peace. That as the enemy is coming and attacking and, and doing all this harassment, you can actually find security and, and rest and peace. Why? Because he is your peace. He is your guard. Psalm 71 verse 3. Be my strong refuge to which I may resort continually. You are my rock and my fortress. Psalm 91 verse 2. I will save the Lord. He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I will trust. Psalm 144 2. My loving kindness and my fortress. He's my high tower and my deliverer, my shield and the one in whom I take refuge, who subdues my people under me. <clears throat> Jeremiah 16 verse 9. O Lord, my strength and my fortress, my fortress, my refuge in the day of affliction. The Gentiles shall come to you from the ends of the earth and say, surely our fathers have inherited lies, worthless and unprofitable things. That you are this refuge. You are the protection. You are the shield. You are the... Wouldn't it be great to have that in your life? That, that you can have this removal of enemy faction, that he's bringing restoration and healing to the emotional, the mental, the spiritual areas of your life, that there is not to be brokenness, that there is to be a peace and a wholeness, that there is just this rest, and that even in the middle of hostility, even in the middle of chaos, even in the middle of trials, even in the middle of circumstances, that there is this undergirding of just peace. Which is, again, not a lemonade thing, not sitting on a beach, but it's an internal state of being where you just, I know I, I can rest. Why? Because he in my life is my peace. I don't merely have peace. I have him who is my peace. So number one is this idea of redemption. Number two is this idea of rest. So I have peace with God and I have peace within the insides of who I am. But number three, there's this idea of reconciliation, which is this idea of peace with others, which is the whole context of our passage. In verse 14, he says, He is our peace who has made both groups one and has broken down the barrier of the dividing wall. So here you have these Jews and these Gentiles, and they are at enmity. They are at war. And what has God done in Jesus? He has brought both groups together and made peace. Because he is peace. And he abolished, verse 15, in his flesh the enmity, that is in the law of the commandments containing the ordinances, that he in himself might make the two into one new man, thus making peace. So God, the fact that Jesus is our peace, not only brings peace between us and him, but then he brings peace within ourselves 
right? This whole idea of wholeness and completeness and soundness. But then he reaches out into our world and begins to bring peace in our relationships. Wouldn't it be neat if God could do that in your life too? That there was not a relationship that you had that didn't have a measure of peace and reconciliation. Now, I understand that that's a hard issue. And it's not a quick fix and it's not a microwavable thing. And it's going to, sometimes it takes time and it takes, takes seasons to bring reconciliation and healing and trust and all that kind of stuff. I get that. But you realize that his agenda is to make peace. Well, I don't know if he can do that in my situation. If he could do this between the Jews and the Gentiles, there's no group that he can't bring peace. If he could make two groups who hated each other, who thought the other group was only made for the fires of hell, if he could bring those two groups into one group and make them one, not two parts of one, make them one, he can do that in any relationship. I mean, the church today is marked by denominations. And we have our little pet doctrines, and, and I'm about this, and you're about this, and I'm about Paul, and you're about Apollos, and you're about Peter, and Cephas. I mean, right? you, know, you got this whole division thing. And that was going on in the early church. And Paul says, what are you talking about? Why is there division? You are one body in Christ Jesus. What would happen if God began to make peace in the denominations? And you're like, well, that's going to be impossible because we don't agree. Yeah, I know. But wouldn't it be an amazing testimony of the goodness of God if it wasn't about the Baptists and the Presbyterians and the Lutherans and the Methodists and the Charismatics and the... What if it wasn't about the little groups? What if it was, yeah, you have this little nuance over here, but we're still fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? Because we are one in Jesus. And I'm willing to fellowship with you, not because I agree with every doctrinal nuance, but because I recognize that you love Jesus. And I love this idea. We're going to keep talking about this in the days to come as we keep walking through this passage. But I love this idea that what God was doing is not making Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. He was making Christians. And when you get to heaven, you will not find Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. What are you going to find? Christians. If you extend that to our world today, you realize, though all our jokes are you know, about our little sections of heaven, you realize that in heaven, you will not find Baptist Christians. There are no Baptists in heaven. I'm sorry. There's not. And there are no Lutherans in heaven. And there are no Presbyterians in heaven. And there are no Methodists in heaven. And there are, there's not a single charismatic in heaven. And there's not a single non-charismatic in heaven. And if you're like, well, I'm non-denominational. They're not in heaven either. Do you know what's in heaven? Christians. And there's not these separate little groups. There's one. Because we are one body. We are one bride. And wouldn't it be amazing, even before we get there, if God would begin to bring peace here and begin to rebuild some of these and break down the dividing walls? And Do you think he could do that with the race issue of today? I find it, I find it hilarious. I was talking to a good friend of mine and, and her kids, and I probably said this already, but she goes, until this recent thing with racism, she goes, my kids began to realize they, they were never racist. In fact, they never even noticed people's colors of the skin. And it's like you notice them, but you don't notice them. I don't know if that makes sense, any sense, right? But until the whole racism thing started popping up, the kids go, I'm actually starting to notice it everywhere. And I think I'm becoming a racist. Why? Because we're talking about it so much. 
that before I did not care what your color of skin was, that I just saw you as a you. But now because the whole focus is on racism, they're like, I'm afraid I'm starting to get racist. Wouldn't it be neat if the solution to this is not in some external thing? What if the solution to racism was Jesus, who is peace and can bring all the groups together? What if the politic thing? Well, there's no way there's going to be peace in that. And you're right. There's, not, there's never going to be peace in that because Jesus is not in it. But what if Jesus was in it? Wouldn't it be neat if, if the issues of the dividing stuff of our culture today, what if those could be solved in Jesus? And it's not that the differences go away. right? You have your haircut. I have my haircut. I don't want your haircut. You don't want my haircut. <laughs> I understand that. Hey, I like my favorite pizza. You like your favorite pizza. We don't, this isn't talking about uniformity. Uniformity is not unity. Does that make any sense? Uniformity is where we all have to like and do the exact same things. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about unity. What would it look like to have unity as the body of Christ? And the best picture of unity is the idea of the symphony. Right? You might be the trombone and you might be the flute and you might be the saxophone and you might be the drums and you might be the clarinet and someone could be the kazoo and, you know, I mean, whatever. Right? So you have all these different instruments and isn't it neat that they're all playing a different note and yet it's one song. Do you know what God's wanting to do in our lives? Symphony. It's a unity thing. And hey, you can have your doctrinal nuance. Fine, keep your doctrinal nuance. But you better have Jesus. And wouldn't it be neat if Jesus is the only one that actually brings peace? And it's true because he doesn't give peace. He is peace. And what if the solution to every single one of our problems, well, what if the solution to every one of our divisions, what if the solution to that inner turmoil and the chaos and the, the brokenness of your own life what if the solution for that wasn't some external, what if it wasn't just, oh, I need some counseling? What if it wasn't just some, what if it was Jesus? Because he is our peace. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, uh, we thank you that you are our peace. They don't merely give us peace, you are our peace. And Lord, we thank you that because of you, we can have peace with you that there's been this restoration, this reconciliation, this redemption between us and God, and that you have made peace with us. And now we don't have to live in sin, and we don't have to live in this squalor of, of junk, because we have peace, because we have you. And that division and that, that cavern that we've always been separated from you because of, Lord, I thank you that we have peace and now we can have relationship. Lord, thank you that you want to come into our lives and bring rest. That all the brokenness and all the warring and all the division, even within our own self, that you are wanting to bring a rest and a peace. So Lord, would you bring healing and not not just physically, but emotionally and mentally. And be peace. Bring wholeness and holiness 
to our lives. Um, Lord, what would it look like if this thing extended out beyond us and began to affect and infect every single one of our relationships? That there wasn't brokenness in the relationships. There wasn't division in relationships. There was peace. There was reconciliation. Um, Lord, we understand this takes time, but would you, would you go before us and just begin to stir within us a, a desire for reconciliation? That you would desire in us peace in the relationships that we have. And Lord, we pray for these groups at large. Lord, we pray for the denominations. We pray that there would be peace. That somehow you would break down the, <clears throat> the dividing walls of denominations. And, and yeah, we understand there's nuances. And yeah, we understand <clears throat> that we differ in certain opinions on certain aspects. But Lord, there's only one body of Christ. And we're going to be spending eternity together. So Lord, I pray that even here and now, before we get to then, that there would be peace. Lord, somehow in the middle of our racial stuff that's going on in this country, in the middle of all our political stuff that's going on in this country, in the middle of all the chaos that's swirling in this country, Lord, the solution is Jesus. Because the only thing that can get us out of chaos, the only thing that can remove division, is peace. And you are peace. You are the Prince of Peace. So Lord, we're not asking for peace. We're not asking for a solution. We're asking for you. We're asking that you would get involved smack dab in the middle of all our issues. Would you come and plant yourself in the middle of our chaos? And would you make peace because you are peace? And somehow in our lives, could we even proclaim peace because the world sees peace within us? Lord, thank you that you are our peace. And that you are bringing reconciliation and redemption and rest on a whole nother level. Beloved Jesus, we just give you the praise and the glory. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.